Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Another no pirate. change without struggle. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. A stick, a stone, it's the end of the road. Okay, and I hope this was Gal Costa. didn't quite sound like hair, but it is supposed to be hair doing Waters of March, Aguas de Marco by Antonio Carlos Jobim. It may have been him, but uh, anyway, we started, or we're hoping to start with Gal Costa because she died on uh, Wednesday, the 9th of November, at the age of 77, And besides being one of Brazil's best known and uh, best musicians, she was also a uh, political activist. Um, and we are here to talk today about Brazil and the recent elections there. Uh, we're also celebrating today my the 27th anniversary of me doing this show. And I also want to thank uh, Nada and Patty for subbing for me the last month while I was uh, in Mexico doing all kinds of things. To um, help us learn and understand what is going on in Brazil, we have two guests today, Alexander Main, Director of International Policy at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And also with us is Zoe Sullivan, a freelance journalist and student. audio producer who has volunteered at WART since 2010. She lived in and reported on Brazil for six years prior to the pandemic and recently returned from a reporting trip there. So thank you, both of you, for joining us today. Alex, can you tell us um, a little bit about Gal Costa and who she was? Well, sure. She was, as you were saying, a really iconic figure in Brazilian contemporary music, um, but also seen as um, part of the sort of cultural resistance to the military dictatorship in Brazil. Uh, she was part of the Tropicalia movement um, that was born in Bahia uh, in the northeast of Brazil, a poorer and more Afro-Brazilian uh, region of Brazil that suffered greatly under the military dictatorship. And she and uh, other great musicians uh, like Caetano Veloso, um, like uh, Tom Zé, like Gilberto Gil, um, all sort of created this movement at the end of the 60s, which uh, was very anti-authoritarian, very explicitly anti-authoritarian, And, and also uh, very much against the conservative, uh, very conservative social norms um, of the time and that were being uh, promoted very heavily by the dictatorship. Um, so there's a lot of about really, well, sexual freedom, uh, but also, you know, women's rights uh, and sort of emancipating Uh, human beings in general, in a period where, of course, emancipation was not on the political agenda in Brazil. So she took very courageous stances, was involved in lots of protests at the time. Um, her friends, uh, the musicians Caetano Veloso and Gilberto Gil, ended up having to uh, go into exile, but she remained in Brazil through the military dictatorship. And um, in a sense... 
continued to resist, I would say, during the dark period of Bolsonaro, um, which is now coming to an end, uh, hopefully permanently to an end. And uh, she was a big supporter of, of Lula, certainly during this campaign. Um, you know, she sort of campaigned virtually for him and um, was at least able to see him um, win the elections in the second round and, uh, and, and tweeted out a strong message that love had won over hate um, just after the results came in. Um, and then we didn't hear much more from her after that and, and learned that she had passed away on Wednesday, as you said. Yeah, yeah, which is sad. Um, so um, she was not the only artist um, who was uh, very visibly uh, resisting the Bolsonaro and Bolsonarism. Um, tell us a bit about uh, how other cultural figures uh, participated in that. Sure. I mean, she wasn't the only figure by a long shot. Um, so Bolsonaro, when he came to office, basically continued the work that his predecessor, Michel Temer, had started um, in terms of cutting funding and support for culture. Um, one of the first things that Bolsonaro did when he took office was to eliminate the Ministry of Culture. Um, and Temer had done something similar, he uh, he had moved to close um, cultural centers around the country, which prompted tremendous protest at the time in 2016. Um, and so anyway, when Bolsonaro took office, he eliminated the Ministry of Culture and he subsumed it into a different ministry along with the former Ministry of Sports and Social Development. Um, and that obviously, you know, people in Brazil, a lot of artists receive funding from state, the state and federal governments um, in order to produce projects, whether it's, you know, books of photography or research projects, etc. Um, and so basically the Bolsonaro government eliminated that. And there was resistance really across the board from progressive artists. So for example, um, there was a, a biennial art exhibit in Sao Paulo uh, in 2021. And the, the title of the event was called It's Dark But I Sing, which um, comes, the line comes from a poem written by Tabo de Mello from the Amazon region. Um, and the poem really was written in 1963, so before the, the coup in 1964, but there were already signs of where things were heading. Um, so the name of the event itself already set a tone. And what the curator of the event said at the opening was, it's more important to speak in challenging times than to speak in peaceful times, which I think is something we can all take a lesson from. So in any case, um, yeah, I would say there has been widespread resistance. And in fact, in March this year, there was a big uh, music festival in Sao Paulo, Lollapalooza, and a number of artists came out very strongly protesting Bolsonaro during their acts. One act even had um, the phrase, you know, Fora Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro out, projected onto the, the screen behind them during their show. And Bolsonaro's party um, asked the, the Supreme Electoral Court, which is the court that handles um, all things related to elections in Brazil to, to prohibit this kind of protest and to censor it essentially. And that produced a huge outcry um, from people across the country. And ultimately um, Bolsonaro and his party had to walk it back because of that outcry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
So, uh, on um, October 30th, Brazil held a presidential election. It was won by Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who is known affectionately as Lula. He was a president before. I am uh, curious to know, I know that both of you were in Brazil during the election, but um, I'm curious to know where each of you were and um, what you saw. And also, um, Alex, I want to ask you, um, I heard a lot of um, people um, or, or read who, who, who discussed uh, the elections, and they kept saying things like, in a stunning victory, Lula won the elections. And uh, I didn't think it was stunning at all because I was following it and um, it seemed to me like he was going to win with a significant margin and instead he won with a very small one. So if you want to explain what you think happened there. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I don't think it was a stunning election at all. I think that's a bit of a wild exaggeration. But uh, to your first question, I was in Sao Paulo on the day of the elections. I was actually an electoral observer um, invited by the, the regional electoral tribunal of Sao Paulo. And so had the privilege of seeing um, the voting places open at 6.30 in the morning, or 7 in the morning, rather. Um, it was an early start. And uh, I guess what was most impressive about that day, everything went very smoothly, was just the incredible turnout. Um, and also just the efficiency of the process thing. It all went very quickly, very simple and sophisticated electronic system, um, really something that the U.S. could learn from. And, of course, we had the results, um, you know, very quickly, even though it was a very tight result. You know, I can imagine in the U.S. it would go on for days and days when it's that tight. And in the case of, of Brazil, um, you know, even though it was just, about a one and a half point difference between the two candidates. We did have, um, you know, very firm uh, final results uh, really by 9 p.m. that evening. And uh, it was incredible to be there um, that night. I took off my observer hat and went and celebrated uh, in the streets of Sao Paulo, uh, primarily the Paulista, the sort of main artery through the center of Sao Paulo, where lots of marches and demonstrations frequently take place. And, uh, and it was incredible the amount of people that showed up. I'd been there the previous day during the last sort of rally in favor of Lula. And there were many, many people then, but this was just um, beyond anything I'd ever seen before. Um, it reminded me in terms of the crowd a bit of, I'm in Washington, D.C., of of the first big women's march in, you know, in response to the election of Trump, the, the, the amount of the crowd, the, the extent of the crowd. Uh, in this case, there were many, many, many young people. And I think that was very striking. And it's clear that uh, I think young people in particular were very, very relieved to be done with uh, Bolsonaro. Uh, but yeah, it was a very narrow margin of victory. Uh, you know, the polling, um, weeks before had suggested something much bigger. And in fact, some thought that Lula could win in the first round of the election, which was at the beginning of October. Um, we, he would have had to have gotten 50% or more, and he fell, of course, two points short of that. And, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing to explain. Um, what it seems to be pretty clear is that Bolsonaro does have a fairly strong base, but that probably doesn't go beyond 30% or so in terms of those that really support him and are really ready to mobilize. Um, that's been sort of consistent in the polling for what it's worth. So then you have an additional 18% of the voting population that uh, also voted for B Bolsonaro in these elections. And I think that's more, I think, explained by a real rejection of Lula and the PT. And I think this has to do with the strong, the very deep stain on their reputation that uh, comes from the years of the 
car wash operation in particular. This is the big anti-corruption operation uh, that took place that was later revealed, um, it was quite clear at the time actually, to be extremely politicized and to be driven by a judge and prosecutors with a very right-wing agenda who were targeting the PT and, and Lula. That was quite obvious, but there were later revelations uh, in The Intercept Brazil and other places of leaked uh, conversations that showed that there was complete collusion between them and that they had essentially worked together uh, the judge and the prosecutors to ensure that Lula was imprisoned in time for the 2018 elections, um, which really allowed uh, for the election of, of Bolsonaro. Uh, the polling had shown that Lula would have won against Bolsonaro in that, that election. And of course, he was removed from it due to his uh, imprisonment. Uh, so during that time, there was a, you know, a very intense campaign that uh, was in the media. Um, they really, really went after Lula. And even though um, this was a politicized, uh, you know, sort of operation that could really be characterized as judicial persecution against Lula. And, you know, despite the revelations of the collusion, and in spite of the fact that the charges, when you look at them, really hold very, very little water, there's very little substance to the charges, they would probably go nowhere in a court in the United States. But despite all these things, I think a lot of damage was done. Uh, the media sort of repeatedly depicted Lula as a criminal, a thief, um, a mafia boss. Uh, it was a very, very strong campaign. And I, I think, um, you know, that's still stuck in the minds of, of many Brazilians. And they really see Lula as this very corrupt individual that they can't trust. Uh, and so I think that that has done a lot of damage. And, um, you know, I think that stain is sort of going to remain on Lula's reputation for many people. But uh, I, I hear from people close to Lula and folks on his team and so on, that they are going to be zealously sort of um, opposed to corruption in the upcoming administration, as hard as that is in Brazil, frankly, they are going to make that a priority and hopefully sort of help improve uh, Lula's image. Because otherwise, he was an extremely popular president. Uh, he left um, the presidency in 2010 with, um, you know, 87 percent uh, popularity. I mean, and, you know, of course, this was due to the fact that um, many of his policies did an enormous amount of good, uh, particularly in decreasing the levels of poverty on, you know, some 30 million people were brought out of poverty during during that period when Lula was president. So people remember that as well. And um, I think Lula is going to do his best to show that he's getting the country back onto a similar track as uh, when he was president um, during the first decade of the 2000s um, and focusing on anti-poverty, getting rid of hunger. Hunger is a huge priority for him. Um, and he's also going to ex expand the, the Bolsa Familia program, the cash transfer program that was very successful in the 2000s and that both helped decrease poverty and helped drive um, domestic demand and and helped with economic growth in the country and um, i just want to jump in actually yeah, because ahead, i think it's important to to mention that the judge who sent lula to prison was sergio moro who basically made it impossible for lula to participate in the election in 2018 when he was favored to win and as soon as Bolsonaro won, like a day later, he announced, Bolsonaro announced that Moro was his choice for the Minister of Justice. And so I think that this is not an inco inconsequential point that should be remembered. I mean, I, you know, I was in Brazil at the time and it very clearly seemed like a quid pro quo situation. And then of course, you know, the Intercept's story later made it clear that there had been a conspiracy, really, to put Lula behind bars. And also, I would say it's important to remember the impeachment process against Dilma, um, which 
Dilma Rousseff, the, the uh, next president after Lula, right. also from the uh, Workers' Lula Party. Party. That's right, right. Dilma Which is the PT. That, uh, yeah, Lula was, or Dilma was Lula's handpicked successor. And she, she was presiding over the country at a time when the commodities boom was coming to an end. Her administration made some decisions, some economic decisions that were not great. Um, she also made some policy decisions. Um, the World Cup was happening during her term, um, as well as the Olympics. And she agreed, for example, to these policy, to these, quote unquote, anti-terrorist policy measures that, you know, I mean, we're familiar with how supposedly anti-terrorist measures can be used to um, attack protesters. And that is exactly what happened. So, you know, she definitely lost a lot of goodwill on a number of fronts. And again, the press played a huge role in, in bringing her down. I mean, basically the press repeated um, even more, I think, than in the Mensa Lam scandal during Lula's term, the, the, the Brazilian press basically beat a drum around her impeachment. And in 2016, she was removed from office for these fiscal maneuvers that had frankly been fairly common um, prior to that impeachment vote. It was simply a measure to get her and the Workers' Party out of power. And, you know, and the more conservative, her more conservative vice president, Michel Temer, into office. So, yeah, a lot of um, obviously political corruption uh, to keep the PT out of power, but it is here um, again. Lula is the, going to be the president come January. Um, can you also talk uh, briefly about what happened after the ele- elections? Uh, Bolsonaro certainly took several days before saying anything, and when he said he didn't concede, um, but he also didn't pull it at Trump. So um, what happened there? Why did truckers and football fans block roads? Uh, what are their interests? Um, explain, explain that briefly, please. Sure. I mean, basically, Bolsonaro has been saying for years that the electoral process in Brazil is flawed, that fraud is widespread. I mean, we've seen this playbook here. This is not, you know, he didn't invent it. Um, so for years, he has, you know, asserted this baselessly with no proof at all. And in fact, before the election, um, the military asked the elections court to be able to um, run a test to verify the results of the election. And the um, Alexander Moraes, who is the head of the elections court, agreed Um, Some would say because he didn't really have much choice. So um, Lula won by a pretty narrow margin. um, And immediately, I mean, so actually, immediately there are people like leading evangelical pastors like Silas Malathaya who acknowledge that Lula had won. In spite of that, because of you know, you can't just dismiss disinformation um, from one day to the next. So Bolsonaro's loyal base took to the streets, they took to the highways to block traffic in an attempt to overturn the results. They they said they wanted, you know, to rerun the elections, essentially. Um, so they wanted a coup in reality. And there have been people um, in front of um, military bases calling on the military for um, an intervention. So again, a coup. Um, and that went on for a few days. Ultimately, Bolsonaro spoke on Wednesday. So like three days after the election, he did not concede, as you said. Um, but he did criticize obliquely the protests saying we can't follow the tactics of the left. Um, you know, ultimately, 
he had, and this was a problem in the elections as well, he had the complicity of the federal highway police who um, on a day, particularly in the Northeast, but, but also in Rio, were stopping buses because buses are how low-income people travel. And they were basically trying to prevent low-income people from getting to the polls. And now the head of the, the federal highway police is being investigated by the federal police for electoral crimes. Hmm. Um, but the, the highway police were complicit with these protests. And ultimately, um, another branch of the police, the military police, were brought out in many places to use force to clear the roads. Mm-hmm. So, um, Alex, like like you mentioned before, um, the army um, basically ruled Brazil for um, quite a few years, from 1964 to 1985. It was a very, um, very cruel um, and um, autocratic um, rule. Are there concerns that the army will um, try again to uh, pull a coup uh, and um, do people think or does it seem like the army will actually um, accept Lula as the president and um, work under his leadership or, or is it going to continue being a very dangerous uh, um, factor in Brazil? So there are certainly reasons to be concerned. Uh, the army in recent years, after being really very neutral, you have senior figures in the army that got more involved in, in politics and injustice in Brazil's uh, judiciary as well. Um, and this actually to my knowledge, first really began during uh, the impris- imprisonment of, and the sentencing and imprisonment of Lula, where you had, um, you know, the top commander of the Brazilian armed forces that directly exerted pressure on the Supreme Court um, to uphold the sentence against Lula. And, you know, basically said, you know, if you don't do this, there will be instability and so on. And so made sort of veiled threats at the time. So, you know, that was a very dangerous thing that we saw. And then more recently in this election, you know, Bolsonaro, of course, um, did initially try to pull a Trump and was uh, making uh, these sort of baseless fraud claims or questioning uh, the reliability of the electoral system and saying that it was open to hacking and so on. and as an observer that got to see the system up close, I can tell you that that's simply not the case. It's a, a system that is actually quite impermeable to any sort of hacking. Uh, but at any rate, um, Bolsonaro, of course, made those claims. And, and then that was echoed to some extent, again, by senior um, army commanders. And as Zoe was mentioning, uh, you know, they were then brought in. The Supreme Court was sort of forced to allow the, uh, the military to, um, you know, sort of review uh, the system and to get involved in the auditing of the system and then to make a final report, which, which just came out. And the final report, um, you know, said there's no evidence at all of, of any kind of fraud. However, however, you know, it's not impossible that fraud took place. And of course, Bolsonaro's supporters jumped on that and are using that now to suggest that you know there was massive fraud. Um, you know we'll see we'll see where that goes. But in terms of the military, really going forward, you know that like most militaries around the world, they're rather opaque. It's hard to tell what's going on in there. But um, I did have the chance while I was in Sao Paulo just now to speak to people who are very close to senior officers in in the military and their sense was that the military was intent did intend in the majority at least and certainly there are sectors that are very pro bolsonaro that uh, could you know take other positions but in their majority the sort of senior 
command within the army uh, is sort of constitutionalist and institutionalist and, um, you know, may despise Lula. And certainly, you know, there's, of course, a very, very strong still anti-communist streak that, um, as was the case, you know, during the heyday of anti-communism applies to all sorts of progressive movements. Uh, in the case of Brazil, the Workers' Party, uh, you know, falls under the umbrella. Um, and so they're very, very antagonistic towards the Workers' Party. Uh, however, um, it seems that many of them were also not terribly pleased with uh, Bolsonaro. Um, the, the support is not as strong as some may think uh, for Bolsonaro uh, in the military, in part because he has sought to politicize the military more and and many in the military feel you know strongly about their role of neutrality that they uh, should be playing ever since the return of democracy in brazil in 1985. Mm -hmm. and zoe you I, wanted to mention something yeah i actually have two comments on that one is um about a week before the second round of the election one of bolsonaro's allies was who has been under house arrest for a while, um, he was going to be arrested and taken to jail for violating the terms of his house arrest. And he threw grenades at the federal police officers um, and shot at them who were sent to to arrest him, which, you know, I, I wouldn't I don't know if this changed anybody's mind in the military, but I think it was an event that that shocked a lot of people. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I was reading is that it also did raise questions, at least among some people in the police who have long been Bolsonaro supporters in general um, about that support. The other thing I was going to say is, um, you know, I mean, there was there's a lot to criticize about U.S influence and intervention around the world and certainly the the car wash case is one of them but um a comment i saw from a brazilian correspondent um in the u.s who works for one of brazil's major papers was that part of the reason she suspects that the mili brazilian military has backed down is that they do get a lot of support from the U.S. military, and it, and the U.S. has been very clear about not interfering with this process. Yeah, well, that's that's good. Um, the United States was certainly very very involved uh, during the time of the colonels when when the army was um, ruling the country. So hopefully it will um, keep away from uh, intervening. I do want to uh, reintroduce our guest, Zoe Sullivan, freelance journalist and audio producer, uh, local here and a volunteer at WART. And uh, she has uh, lived and reported on Brazil and uh, was there for the elections. Also with us is Alexander Main, Alex, Director of International Policy at the Center for Economic and Policy and uh, of for economic and policy research, sorry. You got it. <laughs> it's not really hard. I don't know <laughs> why I had the, the difficulty there. Um, and Alex was also in Brazil in time for the elections. And we are, of course, talking about what's happening in Brazil. And um, one important thing is that really these elections mattered not just for Brazil, but for the whole world, and to a large degree because the uh, Amazon region, which we just heard on the BBC, that deforestation this past month has, has been at unprecedented level and has been going absolutely unchecked or maybe checked for um, for um, how much you can uh, deforest the um, the Amazon and defile it in many different ways um, during the Bolsonaro years and uh, we certainly are, well Lula definitely has pledged to stop that and we are hoping that he can because the Congress is still uh, majority Bolsonaro people so um, Alex talk about that please 
Well, yeah, I think, you know, Lula can do a lot there. Uh, the, the big, big issue during the Bolsonaro years was the fact that uh, he basically, um, you know, had a policy of non-enforcement of uh, environmental protections and also of protections of indigenous uh, territorial rights. And uh, so they defunded the, um, you know, the mechanisms, the organs involved in the protection of the Amazon and, and simply stopped uh, really enforcing the, the regulations in place. And so Lula can, you know, can and is expected to turn that around completely. Uh, of course, deforestation was still happening um, during the Workers' Party governments. In fact, you know, way too much of it and still at a fast rate, but it had slowed significantly um, under Lula and at the beginning of the Dilma uh, administration, but then soared uh, during Bolsonaro. And of course, you know, among his big allies are the agro um, business that, uh, you know, wants to get into that land and particularly the, uh, the ranch, the ranchers that have you know, more and more cattle to try to um, feed the avid consumers all over the world of beef uh, and um, and the miners as well. And illegal mining, of course, um, you know, went really unchecked uh, during the Bolsonaro period. So absolutely disastrous. I mean, uh, extremely high levels of deforestation. Um, and, you know, you had a lot of organizations uh, raising alarm over that and basically saying if it continues at this rate, uh, the Amazon is going to turn into a, a vast savanna. Um, it's, it will no longer be a rainforest, uh, you know, within a certain amount of years and it will be irreversible. So it was very, very, very important for the future of the Amazon and the planet uh, that Lula win this election, really, to, to turn this around and I think we can be hopeful that he'll do a lot, um, but I think, you know, to some extent, it'll still be important for kind of, for there to be international pressure, but perhaps more than pressure, you know, real assistance, because, you know, there's a cost, of course, to limiting the deforestation, um, limiting the mining and so on. Uh, there's a sort of a de developmental cost. It's the worst sort of development model but it's still one that would bring income to Brazil otherwise. And, you know, much has been proposed by uh, the recently elected uh, President Petro that kind of goes in this direction as well. If you, if you want us to not, um, you know, develop these areas, if you want us to clamp down on deforestation, then, you know, the people of these countries do need some form of compensation. And, and so I think, you know, that's also... Uh, an important thing that needs to be discussed more at the international level to support Brazil in these efforts. Yeah, and I'll, I'll want to return to that. But um, so let's um, first talk about um, the the deforestation is accompanied by uh, burning the Amazon. I think last time we had you on this show was in 2019 when the Amazon was um on fire everywhere. There's also mining, like Alex uh, mentioned. There's uh, the building of roads. There's just a, a totality of um, desire, it seems, to destroy that area that is considered the lungs of um, the planet. So if you can talk a little more about that, illegal agricultural projects, all kinds of things, what's happening and what do you think Lula can do? Right. I mean, I think um, Alex brought up a really important point, which is, you know, basically, and Lula is guilty of this as well. Like his government implemented a development, a model of development that, really was based on these massive projects like the uh, the Belo Monte Dam or, you know, where I was based in the Northeast, this massive port and industrial complex. Um, and those projects have huge environmental and ultimately social consequences. Those two places where those projects were implemented are now two of the cities in Brazil with the highest murder rates in the country. Um, and that is in part because 
there were significant populations in those areas who led subsistence lifestyles and they were displaced and the territories that they used to to feed themselves were basically destroyed. Um, so I think, you know, there is a really important question because my perspective is that Lula is, I mean, I, you know, I know that he is committed to stopping deforesting, but I don't know that he is committed to finding a new model for development that respects the environment as well as mm -hmm. social development. Um, and I think that is actually a central question um, that needs to be addressed. And, and it's not just a Brazilian issue. I mean, this is a much bigger issue, obviously. Um, and as far as that goes, uh, you know, will he be able to? I mean, you know, agribusiness has a huge influence in Brazil. And frankly, there are massive financial interests on Wall Street in in that activity. So, yeah. you know, it's not only a political situation for Lula. He's also dealing with international financial capital. Um, and the majority in Congress is held by Bolsonaro's allies. So Lula is going to have a very, very difficult time, regardless of anything, frankly. Um, and, you know, I think in the US, what people need to think about is, what can we do to pressure, for example, these, you know, retirement funds that have money invested in um, in farms or in projects that deforest, what can you do to, to, to pressure your retirement fund to be more transparent about where it's putting its money or to stop investing in buying farmland, for example? Um, yeah. So so let's continue talking about that because uh, that is where we can make a difference. So Alex, um, in preparing for this show, I saw an article by um, another journalist. Um, she's Brazilian who has been on this show before, and she has revealed that um, top U.S. flooring retailers are linked to um, a Brazilian firm that is probed for corruption. It's called Indus Parquet. Par yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly how to um, pronounce it. Uh, but it's um, the largest flooring exporter in um, in Brazil. And I, I was thinking I just recently had to get some flooring. It wasn't actually wood, but if it were wood, as uh, conscientious as I am, it wouldn't have occurred to me to wonder if it comes from uh, corrupt operations in the Amazon. So um, what can be done in that sense so that um, Americans and, and other Western people are more aware of um, how they are supporting the destruction of the Amazon just by what they buy and what they eat, I suppose? Yeah, well, that's a very tricky question because you you have um, you have you, you know you have companies that are specialized in uh, giving exporters these labels uh, saying you know they're sustainable and so on, but they're private companies that get big payoffs from doing this, and so you can't really trust these labels entirely. Uh, but you know, ideally, you need to have some system in place uh, where you're told where things come from and the potential environmental impact of it. I, I don't know really how you get there, but it seems like some public authority would need to be in charge of that. Because if you put it in private hands, you know, there's, there are always some profit-making schemes and, and people can be paid off uh, in order to do, you know, some good greenwashing. Um, but sort of to respond to, you know, your larger... Um, question, I, th I think your larger question, which is, you know, what we can do um, from the U.S. Yes. going forward vis-a-vis um, yes. -vis Brazil. And I think, you know, one of the things is to be more aware of the U.S.'s policies towards Brazil and, you know, what it's doing. And this is often happening behind the scenes, but we can see glimpses of it. And Zoe, um, you know, brought up a really good point, uh, which is that 
you know, this anti-corruption operation that put Lula in prison based on, you know, really trumped up charges and, you know, with an extremely uh, right wing um, judge and prosecutors who were colluding in a clear political agenda. Uh, this received direct support from the United States, from the Department of Justice, uh, that sent agents uh, to Brazil. I mean, they, they essentially helped create this anti-corruption operation. Uh, and then they provided lots of support, um, including evidentiary support that was used um, in the judicial processes uh, that took place. Uh, and, you know, this is something that was very much under the radar for people in the U.S. I think it still is. Uh, the U.S. was definitely involved in this operation, you know, whether they were the sort of key um, reason for Lula ending up in jail is hard to say because it's so incredibly opaque. But I think, you know, your audience may be interested to know that you have you do have members of Congress in the U.S. that have been asking questions of the DOJ. They started under Trump, uh, and I think it was in the summer of 2020, they sent a first letter saying, you know, we're aware of this. There were the leaks that came from The Intercept showing the collusion between the judge and prosecutors and the anti-corruption operation that uh, sort of um, triggered this response from some progressive members of Congress. And they sent a letter asking questions about the U.S. involvement in this operation called the Lava Jato or car wash operation and received sort of just a pro forma empty response from Merrick Garland's um, Department of Justice. And then they tried again under, you know, the current uh, Department of Justice of the Biden administration. And sadly, they received the same sort of pro forma response. So clearly there needs to be more pushing on this. And it's rather sad to see that in all the reporting um, that was done of the anti-corruption operation, specifically of the trial of Lula and his imprisonment and so on, very, very little was said, certainly in the U.S. media, about uh, you know, U.S. involvement in all of this. And so I think going forward, you know, we've seen that the U.S. can often in very insidious ways do things to try to weaken and, and ultimately topple uh, governments, particularly more progressive governments that they feel don't align with U.S. interests in the region. And I think we need to be very watchful of that and call it out. Um, and, you know, again, fortunately, you do have a few members of Congress that are active on this, but it's not enough. I think we need, we need more sort of citizen action to make sure that our government isn't, you know, intervening uh, in a country like Brazil and potentially, you know, destabilizing the politics there. Yeah, yeah. And so you mentioned earlier um, that one of the evangelical uh, leaders has conceded to Lula, but let's put it in context. What What is the role of evangelical Christians in Brazil? They make 30% of the population, uh, a big block for President Jair Bolsonaro, very much like here, um, and, and Trump and, and right-wing causes generally. Explain the role there, please. Sure. I mentioned... Uh, Silas Malafaia, who is a very well-known uh, evangelical pastor in Brazil. And um, just a, a side note on that, in Brazil, anybody who's not Catholic is evangelical, hmm. basically. So just to clarify, you know, what we would consider evangelical in, in the U.S. is not the same as what is considered evangelical in Brazil. Uh -huh. um, so initially after the election, Malafaia acknowledged that Bolsonaro had lost and Lula has, had won. Um, within a few days, however, he had changed his position saying, basically, you have to prove that the election was not fraudulent, right? So instead of having evidence that there was fraud, you have to prove that it was not. Um, hmm. So, you know, for what that's worth. Um, the evangelical population is estimated at 30 percent. The There hasn't been a census. Um, the most recent census was not done when it was supposed to be done. So we don't have an accurate count. Um, but, you know, one of the things that very clearly happened in this last election 
was that evangelical churches and evangelical pastors exhorted their parishioners to go vote for Bolsonaro. And that is illegal under Brazilian law. Um, I find it unlikely that the elections court will prosecute any of that. Um, but there was a lot of illegal campaign activity. Um, I know we have to wrap up. So yeah. I would just say, you know, um, evangelicals are a growing population in Brazil. Um, and, and that I think largely has to do with the fact that, you know, there is, there has been a message about, um, you can, you can have success, uh, you know, material wealth and well-being is, is achievable and attainable, you know, if you do the right things. Um, so a very sort of, you know, Protestant work ethic type of message. Um, but also, you know, people need community and, and need support. And, you know, the Catholic Church has not, you know, it continues to be active, but it's not the same as it was, for example, in the 60s and 70s with its um, grassroots um, e ecclesiastical communities that studied the, the Bible and had the, this sort of progressive understanding of what the religion was about. Yeah. Um, so I think there are some pretty basic existential needs that evangelicals have been responding to that others have not. And that's part of the reason they're seeing grow. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Alexander May, Director of International Policy at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And Zoe Sullivan, freelance journalist, lives here in Madison, um, has been reporting from and about Brazil for a long time. Uh, this is Gal Costa that we're hearing now. Vure Commissar, or something like that. Uh, <laughs> Vo, okay, thank you. Vore Commissar. Um, thanks to Summer and Jade and Sybil, and thanks to all of you for uh, supporting this show for the past 27 years. Uh, always pledging, pledging generally, uh, quite generously. I appreciate that. I'm going to go for another year. I'm STD Noor. Bye bye. <laughs>